Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, December 10th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been up to in the water cooler. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writers Y. Tran Bowie. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Guys, Christmas is only two weeks away. Are you prepared? Not in the least. Yeah, nowhere near. Yeah, I'm, ge- I'm getting those like emails. super prepared, Peter. You're super Whatever. prepared. Whatever, Jacob. <laughs> I'm getting those emails that's like, if you don't order in this next week, it won't get to you before Christmas. And I have not ordered my Christmas gift, so it's giving me anxiety. <laughs> uh, the reason that I'm not talking about what I've been doing in the water cooler section here is because all I've been doing is just ordering Christmas presents for everybody. <laughs> so like I'm almost done with that, but it's a really time consuming process. If you have like a decent sized family and you're trying to get, you know, one or two things for every person and like, yeah, it, it takes a while. So oh, if you guys ben haven't started his yet. Family. Ben loves yeah. his family. Ben loves his family. I just go with the gift cards for my my extended family, which sounds lame, but that's what they do for me. So it's like, okay, you guys are getting the same treatment then. Yeah. What, what do you guys feel on gift cards? I, I mean, I feel like it is impersonal, but it allows you to buy what you want and maybe not get a crappy gift if there yeah, is such I, thing as a crappy gift like where, where do you guys fall i love gift cards I, I i have heard people my wife actually thinks they're too impersonal but please everyone listening send me a gift card i love them <laughs> yeah i don't i don't mind them when it comes to my extended family because they most of the time don't have any idea what to get me but and, and my parents are, are really good with giving gifts so that i i get satisfied when it comes to like real gifts from them I fall in between because I love the process of opening presents. It just makes it feel like Christmas, but I do like spending gift cards on thing I act- things I actually want. Yeah, yeah I'm right I there with you. A gift card from like an acquaintance or a friend is fine, but if my wife said, here's a gift card, I'd be like, no, wh- why, why do you hate me? So. <laughs> Jacob, you're already prepared for Christmas because you celebrated Christmas early. I, I did. Uh, 
I have several Christmases happening this year. I have Christmas in San Antonio with my family, Christmas in Dallas with my wife's family. Uh, we're hosting a Christmas party with our friends with a, with a gift exchange next week. So this weekend, my wife and I said, why dilute our Christmas? Why try to squeeze in our personal Christmas between everything else where we can give it its own space and time and celebrate it today? So on Saturday, we did. We opened gifts. We um, spent the evening together. We went out to dinner. We uh, watched movies. And we just had a really lovely, nice, you know, low back, uh, sorry, laid back, low key Christmas. And I recommend it to all adults. You know, <laughs> once you're an adult, you can make your own Christmas. You don't have to follow the rules. And it worked out great. I mean, it was a really nice, fun adult way to spend Christmas without any of the um, needless chaos, knowing that we have that to look forward to later in the month. And I'm um, even wearing, uh, let's put it this way. I'm, I'm old enough now that one of my main gifts was a pair of slippers, and I'm wearing them now, and they're lovely. I'm very happy to have been given a pair of slippers for Christmas, my first pair of adult slippers. And I'm a size 17, so finding a size 17 slipper is uh, an incredible ordeal. So thank you, Natalie. Merry Christmas. Wow. Uh, well, while you are celebrating Christmas early, Brad is a little late to, to, to this holiday season. Brad, what's going on? Well, so because I was uh, in Utah until the middle of last week at the beginning of the December and after Thanksgiving, uh, I didn't get to get my Christmas tree up as early as I normally do. So once I got back here and uh, now that I moved into my new place, I kind of had to get everything situated so I could get the tree up. And so I finally took the time uh, on uh, Friday night to actually get my tree up. I don't have a lot of my ornaments situated on it yet, but uh, for the past few years, I've done this thing on social media across Facebook and Instagram and Twitter called the, the Bradvent calendar or on Twitter through my Ethan Anderton account. I just call it the Adventerton calendar. And I just post a new ornament from my collection uh, every day that I can. I, I usually get a pretty decent amount of new ornaments each year from Hallmark and whatnot. So I'm starting that a little bit late this year. I'm going to make up for it by doubling up over the next few days and getting some stuff out there. But I did post like a, a video with this, uh, a collection that I'm kind of proud of, of, uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas figures of like Pigpen and uh, Linus and Schroeder and Sally and Lucy and Charlie Brown and Snoopy and his doghouse. Um, so that I had fun getting that uh, all set up here in my new place, and I'm gonna get a bunch of the ornaments on the tree soon, so I can start getting photos of them. Very cool. Um, I have not been doing anything Christmassy this week. I went to the Magic Castle, as I usually do. I don't talk about that uh, every week on this podcast. But I wanted to bring it up this time because I ran into composer Michael Giacchino and director Brad Bird uh, at the castle. And I was able to perform a magic trick for them and blow their minds, hopefully. I don't know. It, it, they seemed impressed. Uh, it, was, it was cool to run into them at the castle. Michael Giacchino is a member of the Magic Castle. There's two tif- different types of memberships. There's associate membership, which basically means you're rich and you buy in uh, very expensively. And there's uh, magician members who actually have to audition and show that they're a magician. Michael Giacchino somehow is a magician member. So that probably means that he actually went through the audition process, which is uh, kind of crazy. Um, because usually... You know, people of uh, usually celebrities just go for the associate membership because they don't, you know, want to go through the hassle of auditioning. But uh, people like him, uh, Jason Sudeikis, uh, recently a few months back, uh, just passed his audition as well to become a member. Uh, anyways, uh, I what else have I been doing? I celebrated my girlfriend Kitcher's birthday this past week. 
Uh, we uh, after going out to eat, we she wanted to buy a puzzle because um, we, we we often mention them on this podcast. But uh, the Tim Tracker, this is a uh, YouTube uh, channel. Uh, they they are usually on their kitchen table. They have a, a puzzle that they're like been working on off and on throughout the weeks and whatever. And she, she saw that and like we haven't done a puzzle. I mean, ever together. Probably, I haven't done a puzzle since I was a kid. So we were at Barnes and Noble, and we bought a Yoda puzzle. I mean, we had the choice of buying an easy puzzle, and we went for this like Yoda puzzle, which is a poster of Yoda in the swamp, and it's all kind of green hues. And I think we probably should have went for an easier puzzle because. It's very hard to find out where these pieces are because every piece is almost like the same exact color, just variations of the same color. Um, so I've we've been trying to come up with excuses not to complete it. Uh, I think we're probably like a tenth of the way there. Um, and we uh, watched some movies while doing this puzzle, which I will talk about later in this podcast. Yeah. So anyways, we've been doing a puzzle. Uh, HD. You uh you did something very exciting this past week. Yeah, so I went to see Harry Potter and the Cursed Child on Broadway, and I didn't hate it, uh, which came to a shock to me because I had read the the um the book the uh, script I guess you would say the play itself uh, when it was released um, as a book two years ago, and it. Well, it didn't impress me that much. It read to me like glorified Harry Potter fan fiction. And I just couldn't see how this was something that came from the hand of J.K. Rowling. And that could become a successful play like it is now. It's very much acclaimed. Um, but when I saw the play on Broadway um, this past Wednesday, I think, which, by the way, is an eight-hour experience in total about I um, it's a, it's a because it's two, two parts. Yeah. Yes, it's two parts. It's Harry Potter and the Cursed Child Part 1 and Part 2. And sometimes you can do it uh, on one night and the second part on the second night. Or you can do it all in one day like I did. And uh, all in one day, it's about eight hours plus like intermission and like a break between the plays. So I was out of this this uh, arena or this um, venue like 10 hours later. Um, but it was worth all of those hours, surprisingly, because this is such a great staging and such a beautifully um, done play. Like the cast is great, and but the effects, especially, are just jaw dropping. Um, it the effects. I'm not sure how a lot of them played out or like how they pulled them off. And I don't want to know because it really it managed to keep that illusion of magic existing in this world, and it kind of gave me that. Um, that same emotion of seeing the Harry Potter movies for the first time or reading about Harry Potter for the first time and, you know, experiencing that childhood wonder and awe of magic. So this was something that I didn't think they could pull it off. Um, the plot is still total nonsense, but the the fact that, like, the staging was so great and the cast, which is so good, um, especially the, the actor who played Harry, um, I can't recall the name of, but uh, he was amazing. And he's, I think, uh, was nominated for a Tony as well. The main three were nominated for Tonys. And um, uh, the the actor who, the character of Scorpius as well was very appealing to me. He was a character <laughs> I remember reading in the, um, in the play uh, and was not, 
I didn't really buy into it. I, I thought that he was definitely written as a character who was supposed to play to our emotions and was obviously written to be like a fan favorite character. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. I'm not going to buy it. But then watching it on stage, I immediately fell in love and was like, I will die for this boy. So I really enjoyed Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. And I wholly recommend, if even if you didn't like reading the play, to see it uh, in person just because it is worth it. And it's so magical to see. Yeah, I also saw this production earlier this year. I think I talked about it on the podcast. Um, I 100% agree with everything you said. The production value of this show is unmatched. I have not seen anything even close to it. And yeah, the story is kind of bad. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. I, I feel bad for anybody who just read the book version of it. Uh, the uh, I guess it wasn't a book. It was a, a, a what do you call that? A uh, What is a play script called? I, I believe it actually is called a book in, in parlance of oh, okay. Broadway. Okay. At least I know that's what musical a musical script is called a book. I can't speak for a stage show, so who knows? I could be wrong. Yeah. But uh you're right, the magic in this is just amazing. And I, I don't even know how a lot of it is done. Um okay, let's move on to what we've been reading. Chris, what have you been reading? Uh I got myself an advanced copy of the Soprano sessions by Alan Seppenwall and Matt Zoller sites and uh, I just started reading it, but it's it's immediately uh, fantastic. It's if you've read, you know, their uh, Breaking Bad books or the the Mad Men book, it, it's it's structured the same way, where they go through every single episode one at a time. It's like an episode guide slash a critical reevaluation of the series, and it, it's it's great. It's just a a great look at how that show literally changed TV. Like every, everything we think of as peak TV today really originated with that show and uh, for better and for worse. But uh, it just reminds you of how groundbreaking and how incredible that series really was and how it, it still holds up to this day. I'm, I'm very excited to uh, read more of it. I, I've been reading it every chance I can get. Do you know when the Soprano sessions comes out in, in book, shelves it will be out in january uh i think i don't have the exact date in front of me but it's sometime in january that's disappointing that i feel like that would be the perfect christmas gift for uh yeah i don't know why i guess you know they have their own uh january 8th is the date it's out i just looked it up so yeah i don't know why it's not out in time for christmas but that's the way it goes i guess and jacob you've been reading console wars now that they have announced that they're making that into a television series what do you think uh, first of all, I just want to uh, say that up front, so we're, so we're clear about this, Blake Harris, the author of Contra Wars, does write for Slash on occasion. I do not know him personally, but I have edited his work. Uh, but Console Wars is so far spectacular. I am about 100 pages into it, and I'm enjoying it so much. For those of you who missed the news last week, this is a book that chronicles the rise of Sega in the 90s as it became the chief rival of Nintendo in the video game space, and specifically follows Nintendo of America as it sort of uh, led the led the charge against Nintendo, and it's way uh, Blake writes the book is that he consolidates a lot of information in the scenes. So instead of like having a dry historical approach to it, he imagines moments where he he, he essentially writes it as a movie. He imagines scenes where people talk and they have a he would combine two or three conversations or combine events just for the sake of clarity, so that it reads. Uh, pace like a novel or reads like pace like a movie 
So you can really reading it, I can vividly see how this is going to be a TV show, how it's going to be, a, how it was going to be a movie, and it is just incredibly entertaining. And if you don't have to be a video game fan to really appreciate um, what's going on here, you just got to be a fan of of David and Goliath stories or a fan of really uh, uh, smart people trying to solve tricky problems. I mean, the, the main character, so to speak, of the book is Tom Kalinske, who is the new head of Sega of America. And he's just this fascinating figure. Like, he created Flintstones vitamins. He saved Barbie. He created He-Man toys. And and pretty much he was the guy who tasked with making sure Sega became a force in America. And he's the guy who saw the original design for Sonic and said, oh, these don't work at all. Let's fix Sonic. And he's just this kind of, like, guy, like, this kind of quiet titan in the world of of toys and video games and i'm very very excited to learn more about him very excited for to get into more meat of the book where nintendo and sega start really butting heads but like last week before i read this i kind of had a vague picture of what this movie could be like and reading it now uh i think as blake harris is clearly a movie fan himself you know being a, being a slash film uh contributor that he wrote this book with a cinematic edge that makes it extremely fun to read um but yeah uh I also picked up the omnibus by, uh, for of the new Silver Surfer series. This was ran on ran through Marvel for I think about maybe twenty five issues or so over the past few years. It wrapped up last year from our writer Dan Slott and Michael Allred. It's now all collected to one hardcover, and this is one of the best Marvel runs I've experienced in recent years. It is very indebted to Doctor Who. <laughs> Dan Slott, the writer, is very much uh, been outspoken that he's inspired by Doctor Who to have Silver Surfer team up with a girl from Earth and go on outer space adventures. And he's sort of the stoic superhero, and she's sort of the the voice of reason who gets to react to all the outrageous things they encounter. And it is so funny and so moving and romantic and weird. And it's it really is a reminder that the superhero canvas is so big and broad that we don't give it we don't give enough credit to the stories that are really going above and beyond to do something truly special and unique. And if you want like really big hearted sci-fi where the emotions and the like ideas meld together perfectly. This, this is all one collection. I think it's 75 bucks, uh, probably cheaper on Amazon, but it is one of the best collections you could read or give as a gift this holiday season. And I'm, I'm not, no one's paying me to say that. I love it that much. So. <laughs> um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I saw the, the new Spider-Man movie, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And I got, I, I fell in love with Miles Morales and I, came home and I downloaded downloaded the uh, Marvel Unlimited app and I was marathoning through those comic books, the uh, original Ultimate Spider-Man comic books by Brian Michael Bendis uh, uh, featuring Miles Morales. I've still been reading more of those. It, it's kind of weird because I've, uh, you know, I did read a lot of, of superhero comics as a kid and then when in my teenage years, I read a lot of like graphic novels, like more of the arcs that were kind of, standalone kind of stuff like Superman Red Sun kind of stuff like that um and uh in my 20s I kind of fell in love with non-superhero comics like the stuff that happens at Image like Saga and stuff like that um so this is kind of a return to me to superhero comics and it's kind of weird that you're kind of reading the story of Miles Morales and then all of a sudden you know this crossover event happens where you know the United States is in shambles, and it's like it kind of interrupts the story that's been going on, and it's not something I'm used to in this kind of you know uh, narrative storytelling. Um, it's uh, it's kind of weird. I don't know. I, I know comic book fans are probably used to this, 
but Jacob, does it, does it still weird you out? Like when something like that happens, like, I, I guess it's like real life, right? Like it's not like one story ends and then all of a sudden, like another one begins. Like some of these things just come out of nowhere. Yeah, it's it's it's. I, I'm not saying I'm weird out by it anymore, but I'm definitely frustrated by it. I know, and I know a lot of comic fans are as well because you're reading a story that's chugging along at a good pace, it's doing extremely well, and suddenly you have to pause for two months because a world-altering event is happening, and Spider-Man has to be involved because it's affecting the entire world, and it's really annoying. I know writers have expressed their um, their displeasure with this in the past because sometimes they'll have a huge plan with their story, and suddenly the world-altering event makes that plan impossible. It is really, really annoying in the point where... Uh, if there's a big crossover event happening, I will sometimes drop the series I'm reading. Like, if, if I'm, let's say I'm reading Spider-Man, and says, oh, for the next two months, he's going to be off in this crossover, and his issues are tied to the crossover, I'll say, oh, I guess for two months I'm not reading Spider-Man, and I won't pick up those issues, and I'll resume when it, when the story uh, picks back up. But yeah, it, it, it probably reads extremely strangely in a trade, where like when it's collected in a book, where you're just reading this ongoing story, and suddenly, oh, here's a giant crossover thing happening. Whereas in issues, you kind of know it's coming because it's being advertised to you, and it's being sold that way. But it doesn't make it any less frustrating, and I really wish there was a better way for that they could handle this. Yeah, yeah, I think I think you put it well. It is kind of frustrating. Uh, let's move on to what we've been watching. Um, while me and Kitra were trying to put together this puzzle, or you know, start the seeds of putting together, you know, the edges of the puzzle, uh, we put on the Christmas Chronicles, which uh, Jacob, I think you talked about last week on the podcast. Yeah, I think it was a week before that, maybe, but. Okay. That was yeah, but me and Chris both saw that movie. Yeah, I think you called it a Hallmark movie. Uh, I think if you think this is the Hallmark movie, Jacob, you have not seen Hallmark movies recently. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is way better than a Hallmark movie. Uh, okay, first of all, I I was watching this half while I was putting together a puzzle. I wasn't, you know, this wasn't my sole enjoyment. Me sitting on a couch, you know. Un, you know, with no distractions. This is kind of like a, you know, a secondary thing. But I somehow enjoyed this movie. It's super cheesy. It's somehow enjoyable. It, um, Kurt Russell, I think, makes it because he, he just goes for it. Like, like, you could see this as like a late career move. He needs money. But like, every scene of him as Santa, you can tell like he's giving it his all. Like, this is like, you know, his chance at an Oscar. Like, I don't know. It just feels to me like his heart is like really in this. And I, I, I can appreciate that. Uh, the film also has this kind of weird turn where at one point they go to the North pole and uh, we meet the elves, uh, Santa's elves. And they're all like these like CG creatures. So it ends up being kind of like this CGI uh, live action hybrid movie at some sort. Um, but I don't know. I found it enjoyable. It's probably a good movie to have on in the background and to laugh at the cheesiness of it. Um, but, uh, Jacob, am I wrong? I think you're wrong. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think that this and Hallmark movies share the exact same purpose, which you described, which is to have something on the background while you wrap gifts or bake Christmas treats. It's the only purpose they serve. This one's a little bit glossier. But otherwise, the exact same thing. It serves the exact same purpose. Maybe, but it, it's just so much. It's so much better than a Hallmark movie. Like the acting is so much better. The production value is so much better. Um, okay, so while we were putting together the puzzle, that ended, and Netflix now has this thing where when you end a movie, it'll just start randomly playing another movie that 
either it assumes you want to see or is somehow related to this movie. And that movie, we were too lazy to go to the remote. And that movie was The Princess Switch, which HT was uh, <laughs> very enthusiastic uh, and talking about it uh, either last week or the week before on the podcast. And I don't remember which. And um, we got like 40 minutes into it before we, we, we got unlazy enough to go over to the remote and hit stop because i don't blame you because it's terrible (laughs) (laughs) that that is that feels more to me like a hallmark movie than the christmas chronicles um but hga i'm I'm glad you enjoyed it (laughs) i enjoyed it because of how bad it is and i think that's exactly what i'm looking for in a christmas in a bad hallmark christmas movie and she's just such a a horrible actress like she's well just... that that i i disagree with completely <laughs> i don't know okay um what, what else did i watch i watched a lot of stuff this week um i watched the first two episodes of the bravo television series adaptation of dirty john dirty john was this podcast about a uh, woman who uh meets a man who claims he's like a surgeon and uh his daughter her daughters who are grown up don't actually like uh, like this guy and think that he's, you know, lying to her and he's hiding something. And, you know, obviously th- this is no spoiler. This is the premise of the podcast. The podcast is called Dirty John. You know, it turns out that he, you know, is lying and there is something shady going on. Um, the television adaptation isn't great. I think Bravo doesn't have their uh, – <laughs> their um, – their narrative non-reality show game down quite yet, but it is kind of um, addictive. It is kind of a, I do want to keep on watching it. It is entertaining. It is weird. Uh, I feel like the original podcast was like six episodes long. I think this is, I think nine episodes of television. And I just finished watching the second episode of the TV series and the, uh, the, our woman protagonist, who is played by uh, Connie Britton. Britton, yep. yeah. Um, in in the guy John is played by Eric Bana. Uh, she kind of figures out that he's lying to her, and that's at the end of the second episode. So I'm kind of wondering how do they have you know seven more episodes to go with this? But I don't know, I'm curious to see. Uh, it has a good cast. Juno Temple's in this. Uh, Julia Garner, who. Uh, I know best as um, she's from Ozark. She plays Ruth in Ozark, but I think she's been in a a bunch of things, including the Americans and Maniac. And uh, I I really love her as an actress. I want to see more of her on the big screen. Um, And uh, I think the third episode of that just aired. So you could, if you want to catch up on Dirty John, I think it's on demand. You can catch it out on Bravo. Um, What else have I been watching? I, uh, I watched a screener of The Favorite. This is a movie that I knew or I thought I wouldn't like. It's a period dramedy uh, starring Emma Stone. Although some people are arguing if Emma Stone is the lead character in this movie. I don't know. Um, and uh, Kitra w- really wanted to watch this. I, we had a screener. Uh, Jacob really made the case for this movie last week. Uh, citing movies like Mean Girls, 
getting my interest. Uh, so despite like me being very sure that I was not going to like this movie, I put it on, and it's okay. I, like I, it's uh, it's just not my thing. It's not a bad movie. I don't dislike this movie. It's just not for me. I know like people are saying this is the best, one of the best movies of the, this year. I mean, I think Jacob said that. Uh, HT, you you also saw this film. So instead of me, you know, being all negative and uh, telling people not to see this, because like, I think most people are probably going to agree with you. What did, what did you think? I absolutely love this film. It's not only one of my favorite movies of the year. I'm highly debating making it my favorite of the year. It's just, it's so um, dark and pitch black and funny and twisted. It's, I'm, I'm kind of inclined to like period dramas. I like movies that, I, I don't mind movies that, are, that take place in like the 1800s or 1500s or something because I think that um, political intrigue and human relationships are so interesting in any time period. But I do get that a lot of people think them stuffy. Um, but the favorite is none of that at all. It's like you take the most savage um, and delirious period piece and put it through a fun house mirror. And it's just distorts everything and makes it feel so strange and oddball and like macabre in a way that you can't help just like be riveted the entire time. Uh, Emma Stone, Rachel Weiss, Olivia Coleman are all fantastic in it. I especially love Rachel Weiss's everything she does, who just exudes this kind of um, power and um, uh, confidence the entire time that I just wanted her to, I don't know, murder me or something. <laughs> one of one of the one of the, those things. But uh, it's such a fun and um, very, very pitch black satire I think that I, I enjoyed a lot um, and it's also uh, very queer too um, there's really interesting um, dynamic between the three lead actresses I don't know if you could call any of them the lead because it feels so much like they three are are the main character in a way um, Emma Stone is also great too because um, she has some great reaction shots and I feel like while she was great in La La Land this last year or two years ago this is the one that she would deserve a, uh, a best actress nod and or win for because she's so she's so good in this. Um, and uh, I completely agree with everything Jacob said last week. Uh, and I hope that I think Chris has has some good things to say about this movie as well. And I think he was also kind of on the fence about it because of the director, Jorgos Lanthimos. Uh, yeah, I don't really I tend to not like his movies because they play out as like cruelty for the sake of cruelty and it, it's it just wears me down man like <laughs> i i sort of liked the lobster but it was just too like mean for me and then uh killing of a sacred deer is just i i hated that movie because it was just non-stop misery porn and i was not in the mood for it so i was really hesitant to watch this but i, I got the screener for it and everyone's been saying such good things about it so i said you know what the hell and i i, I love this this is for me this is his best movie because even though it is you know a mean movie it's not as cruel i guess it, it didn't seem as cruel to me as those other two movies i think like, this movie's cruel I don't know. The, I don't know. The meanness was more comical than it is in those other movies. At least, at least as I saw it. Um, but I, uh, I was in hysterics during this movie. There's this like dance sequence early in the film. <laughs> 
I, I was just losing my mind at how funny it was. It's just insane. It's just so over the top and goofy. And because up until this point, the movie is playing pretty much, you know, it's sticking to the period. And then this dance happens and it becomes totally anarchistic. And it's like, oh, this would never happen in that era. And it just, it's, it's insane. It's so, and it just gets better from there. Everyone is really good in it. Uh, yeah. So this is, this is definitely in my top 10. It's, it's number eight on my top 10 list of the year. I want to chime in on the dance scene real quick, because I think that scene encapsulates a movie for me in so many ways, because as Chris says, seeing stuff is hilarious. Like it's just a really silly dance sequence, but then it's immediately followed by another character having an emotional breakdown while watching it uh, for reasons that become clear as you watch the movie. And the, the juxtaposition between this really silly dance scene and a character having a really almost terrifying breakdown because of it is this movie in a nutshell. It's going to my favorite scenes of the year for sure. I actually also want to interject that the dance scene might not be totally unrealistic because even though they start kind of break dancing at one point um, in historically uh, ballet actually started as a uh, court um, sort of etiquette thing where uh, noblemen and kings would have to, you know, dance ballet as part of like the court society. And they would do these really elaborate uh, dance scenes that would probably not be far from what we saw in the movie. Um, oh. This is just like that <laughs> times 10. Yeah, I don't, I don't know about how accurate it is. I mean, it gets like, they're, they're literally break dancing at one point. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> but I might be wrong. You never know. Like, I don't know. See, this is the same reason why I'm not going to see Suspiria this year. I'm so sure I'm not going to like the movie. Like, do you guys have any movies that, like, you are so sure that you're not going to like the movie that, like, you just want to avoid just because you don't want to be annoyed even more? Um, You're allowed to like that part. I feel like I, for I me, crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've been avoiding it, but I probably will watch at some point. Uh, another one for me is probably uh, mid '90s because I feel like it's a movie that's definitely not about me and not made for me. And I, while I don't think I'm going to hate it, I just don't think I want to go out of my way to watch it, even though I've heard good, good things about it. I've actually avoided watching um, Eighth Grade, even though everyone says it's good, because everyone everyone follows up. It was so good with it made me feel awful, and I'm not really in the mood for that anymore. Like everyone, everyone who praises this movie ends the praise with, "I also wanted to die while watching it." So I'm I'm just not. Well, I I'm think not- I don't think it's like makes you feel awful. I think it just makes you relive some of the most awkward and horrible. Why would I want to do this? It's quite optimistic too, Chris. I will say it's got it's not got a happy ending, but well, it actually does have somewhat like of a happy ending. It's more optimistic than you think, despite many people saying that it made them like hate themselves. From eighth grade until my senior year in high school, I was like, I literally had a a a cartoon rain cloud above my head. I don't want to go (laughs) and think about that period anymore. So I'm I'm gonna skip this movie. I think you would enjoy it, Chris. Okay, well, um, what else have they been up to? On Saturday, uh, we didn't know what to do, and I uh, we looked at the movie times, and we saw that Bumblebee was having a nationwide sneak preview screening on Saturday night, which I, I'm sure we reported on, but I just completely forgot about. And uh, we were able to secure tickets for that, um, even though the t- only tickets available were in the front row. So, um, so, why bother? Because I, well, here's the thing. Um, 
I well, first of all, the last time I sat in the front row was at the ArcLight, and the ArcLight has a good front row. You can sit in the front row and and it not be bothered at all. Like it's so far away from the screen. So I was a little. Uh, you know, hadn't been in the front row in a long time. And also my press screening for Bumblebee, I think is two weeks from now. And I am, I have other, uh, other things going on that night, which I cannot make my press screening. So the earliest I could see it is the weekend it actually comes out. And I'm, I don't know. I want to see this movie and everybody's already talking about it. Uh, so I wanted to see it. So, yeah, we got tickets to the front row. Uh, Kitra was fine with that. And we also decided to see a movie before that at the same AMC, the AMC in Century City. Uh, we saw Anna and the Apocalypse, which, uh, did that premiere at Fantastic Fest or Sundance? Uh, Fantastic Fest. Fantastic Fest. Um, we got there early into the theater and uh, AMC usually has those pre-roll ads running, like the like pre-show entertainment. Um, and there was nothing on the screen. The lights were up in in the house, and sitting next to me, and, and two seats over from me, was a uh, one of those sweep things that they use, so, like those bucket sweep things to to clean the theater. So I'm, I'm sitting there. We're sitting there with like you know a theater, maybe one third full, waiting for this movie to start, and. When I go to press screenings, usually the press screenings don't start early. Usually they'll start like 10 minutes late. So it's not unusual for a movie to start late. And I look at my watch, and it's 10 minutes after the the, the movie was supposed to start, and there's still nothing on the screen. The lights are still up. Uh, so I had to go out to the uh, concessions and be like, what's going on here? This movie was supposed to start 10 minutes ago. And they actually were like, oh, that's weird. And I actually had to go up to the projection booth and like put on the movie. Um, so, so that happened, but I did get to see two movies with my AMC A-list pass and it didn't cost me nearly as much as one ticket it does in, in Los Angeles. So that's fine. <laughs> um, I saw Anna and the Apocalypse. Uh, this is a, a horror musical. Um, it takes place during the zombie apocalypse. It's a, uh, story of a high school girl named Anna who, uh, you know, it's going through normal high school stuff and they're, you know, breaking into songs. This is insanely charming. You know, the the zombie apocalypse breaks out. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I feel like this movie, and it's also shot in the UK, so it um, almost feels like a movie that, like, Edgar Wright should have came on and become, like, a producer just so that they could get more people to see it. You know, executive produced from the... Uh, for, from the guy that did Shaun of the Dead. Um, and I, I do hope more people see this, but it it is highly restrained by its budget. Uh, it's a lot of fun. It feels like its ambitions are much bigger than that budget. Uh, it does have a human villain, which is kind of cringeworthy, and I wish wasn't in there. Uh, some of the songs are really good. Some of them are okay. I wish this movie had more songs. I would highly recommend this. This was a, a cute, fun movie. It's not one of my favorite movies of the year, but I... I recommend that you go check this out Anna and the Apocalypse and uh, after that I rushed over and we saw Bumblebee in the front row and it wasn't that bad like, it was bad at first for like probably the first like five minutes especially this movie opens in this like big battle on Cybertron and it's kind of like having that in your face is a little much but um but uh and I'm usually a person that like needs his seat in like the middle of the theater and the you know uh, halfway 
you know, back and stuff like that. Um, so for me to say, for me to say, I like this movie, and under these circumstances, it, it's probably saying something. I, I was expecting to like this movie, but I wasn't expecting to like it as much as I did. I was shocked at how much I love this movie. Uh, the, the script is full of heart, and uh, it's character first. The, the action is impressive, even though you know it's not Michael Bay. Um, you know, you can really tell Travis Knight came from the world of animation and he's able to kind of like seamlessly blend these things together. It does feel like a lower budget Transformer film and maybe that's a good thing. It doesn't, you know, have these like roll at stakes kind of thing uh, going for it. Um, it does still have the cheesiness of, I mean, not as bad as the Michael Bay films, but at least the cheesiness here are not like horrible cringeworthy jokes. At least they're cheesy jokes that you can laugh at at being cheesy i feel like um so even that um isn't bad uh hilly steinfeld uh it's she's just great she's great in everything she's in and she elevates this movie i love the generation one designs that we see in the cybertron sequence and uh the 80s time period is just perfect for this uh i like this better than transformers one and I know, like, a lot of people will be like, well, of course, it's a Transformers movie, Michael Bay, whatever. I really like Transformers 1. I, I thought Transformers 1 was a good movie. It's probably one of the – it's probably the only good movie in that franchise thus far. Um, this movie, I think, is much better than that film. Uh, this uh, – I don't know. I, I, I really, really enjoyed this movie. This movie is not – saying anything original it's not doing anything original it's a combination of you know et iron giant wally you know a bunch of stuff mishmashed together but it does that so well and it's so enjoyable and uh you know this movie has a hundred percent of rotten tomatoes now guys like there's an eight transformers movie with a hundred percent of rotten tomatoes which is just crazy uh ichi you also saw this over the weekend Yes. Um, I have actually nothing to add after you uh, oh. that gave that great review. I wrote the review for Bumblebee uh, after um, I saw it on Saturday, and I completely agree with you. It's 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 a fun, sincere, cheesy, in the best way kind of movie. Haley Steinfeld is phenomenal, and she is just so such a fully realized character um, right from the get-go. Her character introduction is so fun and so good. And um, she is so assured as an actress. And I feel like this script, too, is very assured as well. Like, it knows what it's doing. It wants to recapture, um, like, that 80s nostalgia. But it also recaptures, like, the spirit of those early Amblin entertainment movies. It feels like it came right out of that catalog. And it does that in the best way. It, um, it has, yeah, it's it's E-Team, he's Iron Giant. And um, it's definitely much easier to watch too versus um the bayhem that you see in the other films uh i've never been a huge fan of like cgi spectacle um battles but here like the color blocking is so um vibrant and easy to distinguish that it doesn't you know give you a headache whenever you watch it and uh it's very character driven action and it feels like finally it's gotten to the core of what like transformers as a franchise should be appealing to it appeals it feels like a family film it feels like it's made for you know kids who grew up uh playing with these toys uh in the 80s and have and want to see that fully realized on the screen so i i really enjoyed it and i, I completely agree with you and on everything you said peter and it's finally a transformers film that is about a robot in disguise 
<laughs> like, mm-hmm. like really after what what have we had five movies thus far like yeah anyways um that is all that i have been watching this week uh chris what have you been up to uh in addition to the favorite uh i watched springsteen on broadway which is um you know the bruce springsteen one man show he's been doing on Broadway for uh, several months now. Uh, it, it, Netflix filmed it and it's going to drop on Netflix this Friday. And I have a review of it up on slash home.com right now. And I hope everyone goes and reads it, but it is uh, incredible. I mean, anyone who's listened to one Bruce Springsteen song knows he's a gifted storyteller, but this really confirms how gifted he is because it's nearly three hours long and there's not like a dull moment. It's literally just him, you know, telling stories and playing his songs. And it had me just, you know, uh, engrossed from beginning to end. And and it gets really emotional. Like there's stuff where he's talking about, uh, you know, his relationship with his father. And even though my relationship with my father was nothing like the relationship he talks about. It just made me like think a lot about my relationship with my father. And it just, you know, it, it got me very emotional and he gets very emotional. It's, it's a great show. And it's, it's really funny too. Like I had no idea Bruce Springsteen was this funny. Like he's, he's like stand up comic funny in this show. It, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Like if this counted as a movie, it would probably be like, in my top 10 movies of the year. But, you know, I, I feel like that I'd be pushing it if I can of this as a movie, because it's really like, you know, a Broadway show. So I'm not, I'm not going to be a jerk and do that, but it really is that good. Um, it'll be on Netflix this Friday and I encourage everyone to check it out, especially if you're a fan of his work. Um, uh, then I, I also watched a simple favor, which is the, the Blake lively Anna Kendrick movie. Um, I thought the the marketing for this made it look terrible, but but a lot of people said it was really good. So I, I got the Blu-ray copy, and it really is very good. I I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I've never been. I don't say I'm not gonna say I disliked Blake Lively, but I never had much of an opinion of her. But in this, she's she's so good that I I you know this is the type of role she needs to be playing more often because she was clearly born to play this type of role unlike the other things she's been doing with her career and it, it's fun i i think it falls apart in like the last 20 minutes and if those last 20 minutes happen differently this actually might be in my like best of the year list but because of the way the ending plays out it, it kind of soured me on it but everything else is, is great it's 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 basically like if gone girl was a comedy it would be this movie uh so if, if you're on the fence and you haven't checked this out, I, I encourage you to check it out. And finally, I, I watched uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is the Melissa McCarthy uh, movie based on the true story of Lee Israel, who uh, she was a writer and her career had dried up. So she started, she started forging letters from famous uh, literary figures and made a lot of money doing it. And this was another thing. I thought the marketing made it look really shitty. And I I was like, I'm just, I'm not going to see that. But again, I I got a screener for it and it's really good. It's, uh, this is hands down Melissa McCarthy's best performance. And it makes me angry. She does so much bullshit like movies where she just plays someone who falls down a lot because she's a really talented actress and this proves how good she is and i wish she would do more of this instead of all those really bad movies she makes with her husband 
and uh, Richard E. Grant is phenomenal in this, playing like uh, her her sidekick sort of. And uh, he has this this sort of line near the end, where you know he he gives her permission to write about him, and it's this like really bittersweet way he delivers it, and it, it it's so good. It, this movie is great. It's it's a little bit of a, a downer, but uh, I I didn't mind that. Um, so you know, can you ever forgive me? Uh, this is definitely up there with one of the best films of the year. And that's all from me. Okay. Springsteen on Broadway is on Netflix. A Simple Favor is on home video. Yeah. It's on Blu-ray now. And uh, I don't know when the other, t- when uh, can you forever forgive me comes out. It might actually still be in theaters. So if it is, go see it. I think so. Um, Brad, what have you been watching? Uh, I haven't been watching too much since I've just been trying to, recover from being gone for so long and getting stuff situated at my new place. Uh, but I did take the time to watch a few episodes of the second season of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which is now available on Amazon. Um, and so far, so good. It's a strong start to the second season. Uh, definitely mixes things up from the get-go with uh, an, an amusing and also charming situation involving um, Mrs. Maisel's parents. And uh, one of the things that was cool for me on a personal note, actually, is in the uh, in the second or third episode, I think it's the third episode, um, a friend of mine actually has an appearance in a small bit part as uh, a banker who deals with Joel and his parents uh, in the show. So this is this is somebody who I went to college with, who I made short films with when I was studying film at, at Purdue. Uh, his name's Tommy Beardmore. Uh, he's a good dude. He's a great actor. And it's just, it was just so weird <laughs> to see him in a show that I love playing a bit part, you know, uh, and, and watching it so that was uh that was pretty cool very cool uh jacob what have you been watching uh i've been trying to play catch up for end of year coverage you know it's last from every year we try to do our uh best of the year list but also various other little lists and other little fun things so i have a master list of movies to watch and i'm making my way through uh but i was seriously sabotaged this week because netflix added two collections of jeopardy episodes <laughs> to their library and there were many nights where i sat down with my wife we're gonna put on something serious that's gonna be talked about in the oscar season and then we said maybe we should just watch an episode of jeopardy first to warm up and suddenly it's midnight we watched six episodes of jeopardy instead of movies <laughs> so i've been watching so much jeopardy it's, it's that show is still good i mean it's the best game show ever made i feel smart while watching i love playing along i love yelling at alex trebek and then smug evil alex trebek um <laughs> it's I, I, it's it's such a good show. It's so simple. It's just just questions and answers done with sort of with just enough humor, just enough grace, just enough intelligence. It doesn't talk down to you. It's it's just as smart as it's ever been. And the collections on Netflix uh, collect together some of the tournaments, uh, tournaments of champions, tournaments of past winners. So it's all people who are really good at Jeopardy all returning to play Jeopardy again. And so, yeah, if you want to put off doing more important things, Jeopardy is on Netflix now. Uh, but in terms of movies uh, I actually watched, I finally got around to The Battle of the Buster Scruggs, a new Coen Brothers movie. And I think I'll echo what a lot of people have said about it, which is that it's hit and miss. The stuff that that's good is really good. Stuff that's, that's not good really did not work for me. Uh, I think its biggest problem is that it peaks early. The first segment, the uh, titular segment star, uh, starring Buster Scruggs, a singing cowboy, is genuinely incredible and has the biggest laugh of 2018 involving a character played by Clancy Brown in a bar. And I was just cackling so hard doing this because I know in the past I've spoken about my love of old school country songs, old school country western um, singers. And Buster Scruggs is, is, a, uh, is a character is saying, what if these 
like really well dressed 1950s cowboys who sing very jolly upbeat songs about like murder and violence actually existed in the old west and actually were as jolly as they were in these songs while committing murders <laughs> and it's a really really fun takedown a re-examination of this style of hollywood you know cleaned up cowboy and it's brilliant and then the rest of the movie is just hit and miss some are good some are not some segments really work and then there's one the second to last one which goes on forever just goes nowhere and it it's it's a long road for a very bad punchline. Whereas I think um, other ones like just one starring Liam Neeson that's actually pretty short. It's really heavy stuff, but it has the courtesy to be like maybe fifteen minutes long as opposed to forty minutes long. But yeah, um, Battle Bunches Grogs. It's more Coen Brothers. Each one works or it doesn't, but it's still the Coen Brothers having a good time experimenting with different genres. It is worth seeing, especially since it's streaming right now on Netflix. Uh, but Amazon Prime has You Were Never Really Here, one of the best films of the year. I know that uh, Chris and HG have talked about this movie quite a bit, uh, both on the site and on the podcast, so I will not go too long on this. But this is Lynn Ramsey's new movie. It is 89 minutes long. It has almost no exposition. There's no fat on it. It is a story of a uh, muscle for hire played by Joaquin Phoenix, a guy named Joe, who's hired to rescue a teenage girl from a... Um, from a sticky situation, uh, to put it lightly, where she's uh, a, a, a a sex ring of underage girls, and what should be this very straightforward action movie uh, based on that premise, which is Joaquin Phoenix armed to the teeth, smashing his way through bad guys to rescue a girl, uh, with Lynn Ramsey at the helm, it becomes this very somber, terrifying movie where almost all the violence happens off screen. You see the after effects of violence. Um, and Joaquin Phoenix's character is, Joe is barely a person. He can barely speak. He can barely function. He only comes to life when he's hurting people. And it is incredibly difficult to watch uh, and sometimes uh, very frustrating and maddening by how little it says. But if Lynn Ramsey's goal is to make a violent movie where all the romance is stripped out of the action, where, you, where she finds a way to... Make sure you, you're never once thrilled by violence and are forced to sort of look at these tropes in a way where you're not excited by them. On that level, it, it's this really impressive uh, feat, and it left me really shaken. And I'm not sure if I love it quite as much as HD and Chris, uh, but it is it, it is an impressive piece of work and a really fantastic movie from a director who really needs to work more often. Uh, Chris and HG, I want to hear your thoughts real quick. Um, am I... What, 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 am I on the right track here? I want to talk about it being an action movie without without action. Oh, absolutely. I um, I adore this film. It, for the longest time, was my number one of the year so far. I'm still figuring out my list. I don't really know where it falls right now, but it's still high up there. And I do like how taut and how uh, trim this is and how it, it deals more with the after effects of violence and how that affects um, Joe's psyche and how he has... It's kind of like how the the real life realization of what we think of as as a lone wolf um and ta- like protagonist that we see in movies like taxi driver for example and it's stripped completely of that glamour and uh, in the end joe is not only a stunted man but he's almost childlike in many ways uh there's this one scene it's not a spoiler but it's um 
this one scene that really sticks out to me is that he is sitting in, in this office waiting for like his next orders and he sees like this bowl of Skittles and he like plays with it like a child, but then he like, he crushes it and he smiles and it's this really fascinating look at how like this is this childlike reaction to something and yet he you know, has this innate violence in him that this is the only way that he can um, interact with the world, really. And uh, that's, I really love this movie and uh, I completely agree with what you said, Jacob. All right. Um, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I saw Hearts Beat Loud, which is a big hit at Sundance earlier this year. I know that, uh, I know Brad talked about this movie a bit, right, Brad? Yeah, I, I really liked it at Sundance. It's uh, really charming and the soundtrack is especially catchy. Yeah, and it's it's such a nice movie. I mean, I was I watched it on the off chance maybe it could break into my top ten, which it won't. Just wouldn't even make my top twenty of the year. But it's such a nice, pleasant, incredibly feel good movie about a father and daughter who start a band uh, as the daughter's about to leave for college. It's Nick Offerman who is just impossibly charming, and Kiersey Clemens who's impossibly charming, and they're great together, and they're convincing as a as a father daughter duo, and the songs all work. It's streaming. I think it's not streaming, but it's uh, you can rent it for Amazon on Amazon for nine nine cents right now, and which is a bargain for a really wonderful, delightful movie. But I want to wrap this up by uh, talking about a movie that I saw the trailer for a few years ago, uh, and it's now streaming on Netflix. And this is Pottersville. I don't think many people have seen oh, I've this. I've heard of this movie. <laughs> I'm going to explain <laughs> the first uh, the first half hour or so of this movie briefly, because it, it's if you haven't seen the trailer, you may not believe this exists. Pottersville is a uh, Christmas movie that takes its title from the uh, alternate reality version of Bedford Falls and It's a Wonderful Life. So it's automatically establishing itself as a Christmas movie by, by, by calling itself Pottersville. It's drawing a direct connection. Even the poster has the entire cast decked down Christmas gear with like snowflakes. The opening credits are shots of snowy streets with a uh, Christmas font and there's even Christmas music playing. And Michael Shannon, yes, Michael Shannon plays a a shop owner in this small town. He does not murder anybody. He's not a mean guy. He's not creepy. He's Michael Shannon playing a very ordinary, nice person. He works with Judy Greer. Just Judy Greer and Michael Shannon star in this movie called Pottersville. And one day, um, Michael Shannon decides to go home early to surprise his wife uh, and and give her a little date night, only to find his wife, played by Christina Hendricks, having an affair with a local uh, town sheriff. Played by Ron Perlman, except they're both furries and they're having an affair in furry costumes. So automatically does this big left turn with this crazy cast of people. So then, uh, down on his luck and feeling sad, Michael Shan's character drinks a bunch of moonshine cooked up by the local old crank played by Ian McShane. So now Michael Shannon, drunk at Ian McShane's moonshine, puts on a gorilla costume to prove to his wife that he could also be a furry, is seen by the townsfolk who think he's Bigfoot, so everybody starts coming to town to hunt for Bigfoot, including a uh, a TV reality show star played by Thomas Lennon, using a really crazy Australian accent. And suddenly, this, this is the first half hour of the movie, guys. This is the first half hour of Pottersville. It's a Christmas <laughs> movie about Michael Shannon actually becoming Bigfoot because his wife ha was having a furry affair. And it's Ian McShane and Ron Perlman and Christina Hendricks and all these people in this bizarre bizarre thing it's not good it's a terrible movie but it exists it exists and i'm very happy it exists has anybody else witnessed pottersville 
Uh, I, I, I know of it. I, I remember seeing the poster and being like, Oh my God. And I, I, my original plan was like, I'm going to watch this and I'm going to make fun of it. And then I read an interview with Michael Shannon where someone like flat asked him like, why are you in this movie? And his answer was literally, uh, it's, it was made by a friend of his who has just had really hard time breaking into the movie business. And he just was like, I wanted to do a nice thing for him and appear in his movie to hope it, you know, hope people would recognize him. And reading that, I was like, I felt so bad. I was like, Oh, I can't make fun of this now. Michael <laughs> Shannon did it, you know, as, as a good gesture. And I felt really bad about like, I felt like I was being mean. So I never, I never watched it. Cause I, I it just, Michael Shannon, uh, inadvertently shamed me for ma- making fun of Pottersville. So Michael Shannon, despite his creepy uh, persona, is a really nice guy, and he does movies like this as a favor. <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say that it, the director will not be making anything else anytime <laughs> soon. Michael Shannon's help aside. I've heard of this movie. Um, my friend is obsessed with it after he accidentally watched it like two years ago. Um, and he has decided to make it a tradition of watching it every Christmas. And he's going to force me to watch it this year, I think. So um, I will get back to you on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jeopardy! you can find on Netflix alongside uh, Buster Scruggs. Uh, you Were Never Really Here is on Amazon. Hearts Beat Loud. Where did you see that, Jacob? Uh, it's rentable for $0.99 cents on Amazon. And Pottersville. Where can people find that if they want to find it? If they care to, it is on Netflix. Uh, uh, I feel like, you know, there's only like a handful of movies that I have not seen this year that are like, you know, in that top 10% or, you know, top 5%. And one of them is You Were Never Really Here. And one of the other is If Beale Street Could Talk. And Ben, uh, you saw this not once, but twice. Yes. Yeah. Uh, My wife was not able to go to the original screening that I saw, but I uh, was able to get into a film independent presents screening and bring her along. And I really wanted to show her this movie because it's one of my favorite films of the year so far. It's Barry Jenkins new movie. He's the guy who directed Moonlight. And uh, this movie is tremendous. I mean, I talked about it already. I think uh, Chris has reviewed it from the site or uh, for the site. And uh, maybe we'll link to his review in the show notes and hopefully people will head over there and and read the full review but uh barry jenkins just knocks it out of the park again with this movie i just wanted to give a quick shout out to the score by nicholas Bertel, which is just tremendous it's this like mixture of jazz that with like horror movie overtones in certain parts and i also wanted to shout out brian tyree henry who's having a hell of a year in like five or six movies by the way uh and he just rolls in for like one major scene in this movie and delivers this incredible uh, scene with uh, Stephen James, who's the the lead of the film. And then he's just out of the film. But it's just like a it's one of those performances that really, really sticks with me. Um, and one of the, the best supporting roles, I think, uh, of the year, even though it's only really for just one scene. So, uh, yeah, I just wanted to give a quick shout out there. And, and for people who are in L.A., you should really look into Film Independent because they're a terrific organization. They have all sorts of like free member screenings all the time. I think this week they're actually doing a free members only screening for destroyer, the new Karen Kusama movie that stars Nicole Kidman. And I haven't seen that yet. And I'm really excited about going to check that out. Cause I think they're going to have a Q and a with uh, Karen Kusama right afterwards. Um, and tickets for that particular show are 
sold out, but you can go to filmindependent.org and find out more information. They actually are going to have like a standby line. So if you're in LA and interested in, in checking that movie out, I would recommend uh, trying to look that up and maybe drop by on Wednesday at the Arclight. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, if Bill Street could talk, that, that comes out uh, in limited release this week in LA and New York, and then actually opens wider on Christmas Day, uh, December 25th. So um, if you guys have not seen this yet, uh, you know, screenings or otherwise, I, I would highly recommend adding this to your to your watch lists because this is a, a terrific, terrific movie. Um, I also had a chance to see RBG, which is a documentary that came out earlier this year. I think it played, yeah, it premiered at Sundance this year and I missed it there. Um, this is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court Justice. I didn't really know anything about her uh, other than just like the, you know, notorious RBG memes and stuff like that that you would see pop up on, on social media here and there. But uh, I, you know, and I, I knew of her as a, uh, a pioneering person who you know, made a lot of uh, a lot of strides towards women's rights and stuff like that. But I, I really didn't know anything about the actual accomplishments that she achieved as a you know in her uh, profession or anything about her personally. And this movie does a really good job of just sort of like laying the groundwork and and sort of um, it's a great primer. I think it's not like a super deep movie that doesn't doesn't really dive into any one particular aspect of her. It's sort of, it sort of reminded me of like the Mr. Rogers documentary earlier this year um, where it's like, it's a really great overview with, you know, there are definitely uh, moments where I wish they would have, the filmmakers would have focused in on certain aspects and, and really um, tried to sort of dig in and, and uncover uh, a little bit more about the mentality behind certain decisions and things like that. But in terms of, you know, for people who don't know anything about her, which was me in this case, it was a, a really great, um, breakdown of why she is important and why she matters. And I think uh, it's a really enjoyable movie. So I get this one on the, um, it's on Blu-ray right now. And I, I rented it through the Netflix uh, disc plan, but I think it's occasionally playing on CNN because it's a CNN films uh, movie. So I don't know, maybe check your local listings. It might be available there. Um, and then one of the other things I had a chance to check out was uh, the most recent episode of The Good Place. And I don't want to talk about this really because I don't want to spoil it. I actually had the premise of this most recent episode spoiled for me. And I was really bummed about that because it would have been great to discover that uh, sort of organically. So I'll try to preserve that experience for everybody else. But I just wanted to give a huge, huge shout out to Darcy Carton, who plays Janet on the show. She is typically been sort of saddled with playing like this Siri type character who just sort of uh, pops up and answers questions for people. And, and, you know, she's been funny and good and she's actually had the opportunity to play uh, a, a bad place version of her character named bad Janet. And that uh, let, lets her really let loose and, and show a little bit more range as an actress. But this most recent episode is just a huge showcase for Darcy Carden. And I, I don't want to say anything more about it than that, other than just, man, it, it's like one of the best episodes of the good place so far. The show is in its third season. It's on NBC. Um, I think uh, several seasons, maybe the first two seasons are already on Netflix right now. So if you haven't seen the show and, and you want to catch up, that's where you can do it. And you can watch some of the stuff on NBC.com as well. Um, so, yeah, uh, Darcy Carton is a queen. She's amazing. <laughs> and then also, guys, I saw what I think is my least favorite movie of 2018, which is Mortal Engines. Ouch. I yeah, I am. Uh, I, I was shocked. I, no. I was shocked. <laughs> I was in shock at how terrible this movie is. 
So wait, wait, Ben, my, did you see Mary Poppins? I did, yeah, and I liked it way less than Mary Poppins. And Peter, you know how much I really disliked Mary Poppins Returns. <laughs> so th- this is like it's one of the worst would-be blockbuster like mainstream movies of the decade. I think it's like it is a it is a catastrophe on almost every single level. It's it's a you know, on a story level, it's basically just an amalgamation of every single. Uh, young adult story that you've ever seen there's no originality to this thing at all the only thing that that you could possibly give this movie a pass for is the the way that it envisions the worlds and and like it's basically like world building the movie but the characters are so uninteresting and so uninspiring that yeah, this world exists, but who gives a crap if these are the people that are populating it? Like, it's just there. The central love story. It, there's no reason to invest in a relationship between those two characters. The actors are really, really bad. Uh, there's zero chemistry in any of the performances. Um, Hugo Weaving plays one of the the primary villains, and he is just like he's doing the same thing that we've seen him do a million times, and. Uh, guys, this movie is just like I I was openly laughing in the theater because there, there were only a few people in the screening that I was at. And like at a certain point, it just got like ludicrous at how bad this movie was. I, I I'm having trouble putting into words how terrible it is. The I mean, again, I don't want to just like completely crap on this thing. There are a couple tiny elements that that maybe um they don't even save the movie, but they make it like at least not a, a 100% excruciating experience. And that is just like the production <laughs> design. There's like some interesting stuff going on. Like, for example, there's a, there's a guy, a character that the, the leads run into at a certain point in the movie who's wearing a suit that's entirely made of buttons. And it's like, it's never commented on. It's just, you know, the movie takes place in this sort of post-apocalyptic wasteland. So it's just sort of implied that like, people have scrounged around and found these kinds of items and, you know, they've made clothing with it because that's all they have left. But all of that is like uncommented on. It's like the movie is not interested in the most interesting aspects that it has to offer, which is like these cool production design elements. And the whole rest of it is just a mishmash of really, really basic garbage action template stuff. It it feels like it was written by, an algorithm or something it's there's no heart there's no um there's nothing interesting there's nothing even like even the the central concept from all the trailers of like the cities eating each other that happens one time in the opening scene and that's it and it's like man this was it's a huge huge disappointment so i would recommend that everyone stay as far away as possible from mortal engines ben how is steven laying in it because i'll i'll come up front and say like i visited this set for slash film last year and it was a really impressive set lots of massive things i, I saw at a good time that's a visit everybody working on movies very nice <laughs> but this is my what you're describing is my concern walking away that it was gonna be a huge mess that didn't quite come together but stephen lang plays a mummy assassin so how bad can stephen lang be as a mummy assassin <laughs> so the thing about that is that character is beyond terrible in in every like in execution and design and everything like he is, like you say, a zombie mummy assassin. And you would assume that there would be something interesting about that. But it's it's like 
it's a terrible performance. And it, it's like, so Stephen Lang is completely unrecognizable in it. And that's because I guess he was doing motion capture stuff on the set, but they ended up not even using that and, and instead used it more as reference instead of actual performance capture. So it doesn't look like Stephen Lang and, and it's not like, you know, like Josh Brolin's Thanos, like you can clearly tell that that's part of Josh Brolin's face is in that character. And like, you can see the Brolinisms and stuff like that. This is not that, I mean, they used some of Stephen Lang's facial, uh, they put dots on his face, I guess, and like logged all of his facial expressions and stuff like that. But, but it doesn't come through. It doesn't translate into the actual character as like, Oh yeah, I'm watching an actor play this guy. It's, uh, man, it is like, sometimes I say the word woof when I see a bad movie and I just, I can't bark loudly enough at this movie, <laughs> at Mortal Engines. It is just, uh, man, it's, it's an abomination. Wow. This, this, I'm not going to lie. Like whenever I do on a set visit, uh, I always feel like, oh, I'm rooting for those guys. Cause you, you, you meet people firsthand making a movie, you meet the people working hard and I was rooting hard for Mortal Engines, even as the year went on and started realizing, oh, Universal is not marketing this. Oh, these trailers are bad. Why aren't they showing things? What's going on? And I started growing increasingly less optimistic. And man, man, like you have, wow. That's, that's, that's <laughs> this is what I feared. And I feel really bad for everybody who I met on that set because, whew. Yeah. And, and like Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philip Boyens, the team who wrote the Lord of the Rings movies, wrote the script here. And I mean, I, I have not read the original book, so I can't speak to that. But the script is really awful. And it is I mean, I, I'm right there with you, Jacob. I was I was actually kind of looking forward to this because I felt like there was the opportunity for it to be really fun, like a almost like a um, like a Wachowski uh, type of movie. And and some of the shots from the trailers gave me that impression. Like there's these airships and stuff. It seemed like something almost out of like Cloud Atlas, like the futuristic section of of Cloud Atlas. And I love that movie. And I was kind of hoping that that this film would be fun in that way. And it is the Wachowskis always are are using action and and effects and all of that stuff to explore theme and characters. And this movie, the theme is just. Um, well, I, I don't want to give anything away, but it, it is just a uh, man. It, it's so basic and so uninspired. Um, it, it's yeah, it's just a disaster of a movie. So I was, I was very, very disappointed with Moral Engine. Uh, that sounds disappointing. Uh, you know, judging by the trailers, the only thing that seemed of interest to me was really the world building. But you have not given me any confidence in that it's worth seeing the movie for that alone. So Yeah, it's not. Like, sometimes characters will just be like, oh, this reminds me of the, the great hills of Abarnan or something. And it's like, you, you can't just say that and never do anything with it and expect us to buy into the fact that this is a larger world if we don't care about the people who are saying these lines. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I made that line up, but uh, <laughs> the, the sentiment still stands. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to HT. What besides uh, Bumblebee in the favorite? What have you been watching? Um, I also saw um, another period piece aside from the favorite called Mary Queen of Scots, and uh, this was a movie that stars Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie, and it's about um, well the titular Mary Queen of Scots who 
famously conspired to take the throne from her cousin, Queen Elizabeth, played by Margot Robbie. And um, it's fine. Uh, I remember going into it kind of intrigued by having this female-led period piece and wondering if they would go into um, some sort of interesting female dynamic. Um, To be historically accurate, these two people, uh, Mary Stewart and Elizabeth, uh, never met in person. So it makes sense that like a lot of the tension that takes place in this film happens through envoys or through letters. And they kind of play it well in... um, like drawing these parallels between uh, Mary, who is a very passionate firebrand and uh, very ambitious, and uh, Elizabeth, who is all-powerful but is extremely paranoid. And they kind of have these two interesting storylines that kind of fall, not fall apart. They don't really connect in the end. The movie ends up being more about Mary and um, the... It's just uh, well, while Saoirse Ronan and Margot Robbie are great, they're phenomenal in these in these roles. Um, the movie itself is just kind of fine. It's very sprawling, and um, it's written by Bo Willimon, who um, you may know from House of Cards, and it kind of has that same sort of intrigue, uh, or rather, soap by way of intrigue. It feels like there's a lot of um, just uh, these. Uh, sorted affairs uh, that are somehow supposed to make us feel like this movie is more interesting than it is and uh, how it ties into the political intrigue going on. But I felt myself being mostly bored by a lot of it, and uh, which is unfortunate because, again, Sersha and uh, Margot are so great in it. And, um, yeah, it's kind of... Um, once I, I once I saw The Favorite later, I, I was very excited to see that was the movie that I kind of wanted Mary, Queen of Scots to be. So um, standing them side by side is... There's really no question which one's a better period piece and um, has more interesting uh, even uh, depictions of LGBT LGBT characters. So uh, Mary Queen of Scots, all right. Um, And then I also saw uh, Roma, which I absolutely loved. Um, So this is a film that I've been looking forward to for a while. It's directed by Alfonso Cuaron, and it's a very intimate sort of his intimate magnum opus. It's about his uh, own life growing up in Mexico and kind of about the, uh, from the point of view of this maid who works for this rich family. And uh, it's, it kind of um, drifts really slowly for the first half so much so that I didn't really know where it was going, but by the end it is like, it envelops you in this, in his memories and in his experiences and in this, the main character's experiences uh, played brilliantly by um, the actress uh, Yalitzo Aparicio. I'm very sorry for mispronouncing that. She's phenomenal in it. And uh, this movie is just, it's such an experience um, and it's so immersive. I saw it in a Dolby theater, um, and I didn't expect it to, to be quite such a cinematic experience as it is. Um, it really makes use of its sound design uh, expertly well. Um, the the crowd scenes, for example, um, it kind of is done in like the surround sounds, and it's so pin, pinprick accurate that for a lot of the times I would turn around angrily thinking that someone was talking behind me when in fact it was part of the movie. Um, and it just kind of envelops you the entire time so i i really enjoyed it and um i you're you're like the fourth person i've seen that has said that exact thing for that scene in that movie (laughs) which makes me wonder like can surround sound be too good like that to me feels like it would be distracting and not 
uh, immersive. <laughs> I mean, I think that if you didn't realize for it, it took me a while to realize it, but then when I did, it does it does like become more immersive than distracting. I don't think it was like overly distracting. It was kind of like in the corner of your ear more than anything. Um, it's a, it's it's a really beautiful film. It's really uh, it's very uh, some sumptuous, I would say, even though it's in black and white. Um, and I highly recommend it. I know you saw it on a screener, which I hey, don't recommend. I, I at all. made the mistake. People were were chastising me on social media this weekend <laughs> about this. You know, I saw it on a screener. This was, uh, I think, before it was playing in theaters, and I regret like five minutes into the movie, I was like, I regret watching this on the screener, and I like even turned to. Kitran was like, you know, maybe we should shut this off and like see in the thing. But like, we had just already started. I don't know. I was so excited to see it. I regret. Like, this is like one of my biggest regrets of this year is watching Roma on a screener. Um, but it is, even though the quality of DVD, you're missing out on, you know, the clarity of that vision. It, it still comes through. Like, the, 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 the beauty of every single frame and the way he, you know, presents every scene. Like, you know, it still comes through on even, like, you know, <laughs> archaic technology of uh, of a DVD. It's kind of amazing to me that screeners are still mostly sent on DVDs and really crappy ones at that. I, I think it's because they don't want people uh, – it's about piracy. Like, they're worried about mm. people in the industry or, or people getting a hold of the copies and uploading them online uh i did watch my dvd on like my projector which is like 160 inch screen so it was a big screen hd but it was just taking that data and <laughs> stretching it so you oh. saw the pixels it was it was, it was pretty bad <laughs> uh, well um i hope you get the chance to see it in theaters at some point and uh, before it gets on netflix uh later this month um another one i saw was um, they shall not grow old, which is a is a documentary about World War One, uh, directed by Peter Jackson. This is the Peter Jackson movie that you should see this season, um, and it was done in collaboration with um, BBC archival footage. Um, and it, he basically used you know hundred plus year footage that was shot during the time in World War One and uh, created a full fledged immersive. I guess you would say documentary out of this. It plays like a modern documentary, despite being from a hundred year old archival footage. And they, this is a movie that we had to watch with 3d glasses, which kind of annoyed me at first. Cause I'm like, why this is a world War one documentary. But then you realize as the screen expands from the old black and white grainy footage to this widescreen colorized, um, almost like animated looking footage why that those 3D glasses are there. And it's very essential because it adds all this depth and um, like extra and extra beauty to this film. And uh, he does an amazing job of creating this uh, World War One documentary. And I, I haven't seen a lot of World War One documentaries, um, but it's definitely uh, one of 
probably the best I've seen. Um, and uh, it really puts you into the the trenches, as they say. So uh, I recommend this. I Well, I'm writing a, a review about this uh, later on that will be published probably next week. Um, but it's uh, going to be showing in theaters for only a few days in limited theaters um, uh, in December 17th and 27th. So if you get a chance to see this, uh, check this out instead of Mortal Engines. <laughs> yeah, Roma is in limited release right now. It will be on Netflix soon. Mary Queen of Scots, where can people see that? Uh, that is in theaters now. Theaters I now. think it's actually in wide release, yes. Okay, uh, let's move on to what we've been eating. Um, while I was at the AMC Theater, I know Brad hates to or loves to hate these uh, Coca-Cola uh what do they call those machines brad the freestyle machine freestyle machines i like them because i like the choice of having like weird mixtures of soda and uh why do you hate them brad i'm just i'm curious because so i like the idea of having all these flavor options but the problem is is because of how the machine works the syrup itself is never as good when it's mixed with the soda because it's constantly bringing in like fragments of the other flavors that have gone through the machine and so it the, it doesn't taste quite as good as it's supposed to brad's right brad's correct here listen if, you, if you're getting like a specific thing yes you're right but you can get all sorts of flavors that you couldn't get like at the at the grocery store and that's what i usually do with these machines so it doesn't matter to me because these aren't like i i'm not getting a subpar version of you know lime fanta or whatever because yeah, there, there are flavors that are good through it but like if you're in the mood for like a grape soda a grape soda is the worst thing you could possibly get from the freestyle coke machine i have not tried that um well i'm not sure if this is a regular thing or if this is something they just started this holiday but at amc theaters on their freestyle machines they have holiday flavors they have like a button that's for these mixtures that they have created just for this holiday season, they have like this winter wonder lime Fanta. They have uh, a vanilla cherry Coke flavor. They, they have a bunch of different flavors. So I was trying those while I was at the AMC theater. Uh, Brad, you you're, you have no interest in these? I no, no. Actually, I um I went when I was in Utah. We went out to eat um somewhere and I had a freestyle machine and I saw that they had the holiday flavors on there too. I actually forgot to mention it on the podcast, but I had the the cherry the cherry vanilla coke because uh, that's kind of hard to screw up with the freestyle machine um but i haven't tried any of the others yet i think that they actually change like the, the flavors each year some of them are flavors that are just normal they've just renamed them as holiday flavors because like you can get a cherry vanilla coke anytime you want to from a freestyle machine um but yeah so it's it, they're, they're not bad but you know again just in general like a good amount of the flavors especially when it comes to the fruit flavors are marred by the fact that they just don't taste as pure as they're supposed to if you had like that actual syrup from a fountain that that served only that flavor i love the lime fanta zero which is a, a flavor that you would never get in a grocery store uh Kitra hates that i get it every time we go to the movie theater because she does not like it and uh she usually you know shares my drink uh, but, uh what else have i been eating i uh oh uh, one of my favorite restaurants, Doughboys, closed in L.A., uh, I think, a year ago. I, last time I ate there was the night that Trump got elected, so there's some bad feelings there. Uh, but um, in its place is a new barbecue place called Slab. So this is on uh, 3rd Street, I believe, in Los Angeles. And 
this is the place that um there used to be this guy that in his backyard would make this Texas style barbecue and he would put it was called Trudy's uh underground barbecue and he had an instagram account it was like this big sensation in los angeles he would post photos when he whenever whenever he was making brisket and stuff and uh you had to like enter a lottery and if you entered the lottery you could buy barbecue from his like you know that barbecue uh, that he would do that weekend or whatever um and it was this really limited hard to get thing and a lot of people were always after it this guy finally got his own restaurant and it's called slab and it's on third street and i've been there not once not twice but three times over the last week it is the best brisket i've ever had outside of austin texas um it is so good uh I highly recommend it if you're in LA and there is currently, uh, you know, on the weekends a line down the street and they like run out of their like good brisket by like, you know, 2 PM. So you got to get there early and uh, wait in a line. Not as bad as hauling rays, probably only like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, but I highly recommend it. Uh, Brad, next time you're in town, we're at, we'll have to get some barbecue. I am totally down for that. What have you been eating, Brad? Um, so pretty basic stuff, but it is new stuff. Um, if in case you haven't seen commercials lately, Kentucky Fried Chicken has finally made the decision uh, that they should have made so long ago to have chicken and waffles uh, at the at their locations. It's a limited time thing, um, but I immediately wanted to go out of my way to try it. And you know, it's it's pretty much as good as you would expect fast food chicken and waffles to be. Uh, the waffle is. Um, is a little bit better than expected because they, they do something um, special with the mixture. And I, f- I forget what it is that's actually in, in like, the, the, what they actually do with the batter. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty good. So they give you the syrup along with it. You can either get, like, the actual uh, chicken that they have um, or you can get chicken strips with, uh, with it instead. Uh, and it's a pretty, a pretty good combination. The, the salty and sweet works. And, you know, for, like I said, for fast food chicken and waffles, uh, it's, it's a pretty good option if you don't have something like a, a waffle house near you. What else have you been, been eating? And so uh, I mentioned um, when I was in Utah that I discovered the uh, tastiness of apple beer. And since it's not easily available in this area, I'm not going to Indianapolis anytime soon to get it from whatever store they have it at down there. Uh, I did stumble upon a pretty decent replacement for the time being at Aldi's. Uh, they had these four packs of Nature's Nectar Sparkling Apple Cider. Uh, and it is about as close to apple beer as I could have asked for. It's, it tastes a little less like soda and just more like apple cider that has carbonation. And it, it is really, really good. I'm going to have to go back and get some because I'm pretty sure it's on its way out seasonally since fall is over. Uh, but it is it is fantastic. If you have an Aldi's near you or you know where to find uh, Nature's Nectar Sparkling Apple Cider, I recommend go out in your way to, to get some. What is Aldi's? Oh, you guys don't have Aldi's out there. So Aldi's is like a, a discount grocery store chain. Um, it's Maybe it's just a Midwest thing. I'm actually not sure. I thought it was pretty widespread. Um, but they have a lot of generic um, off-brand groceries that are cheaper. It's usually... It's usually the, like the kind of discount stuff where like it's it's closer to the expiration date than stuff you would find in like normal grocery stores. Not that it's like going to expire tomorrow necessarily, but it's close enough that like most of the regular grocery stores have have already gotten rid of like some of their extra stock and stuff like that. So that's why stuff is usually cheaper there. Ah. Okay, let's move on to our last and final uh, section. That is what we've been playing. Jacob, you've, it seems like you've been playing a lot of video games lately. 
Uh, yeah, did, did you guys know there's a new Super Smash Bros. game out? I mean, it's of course, if you if you've been following video games at all, this all everybody's talking about. It's uh, the fifth game in the Super Smash Brothers series. This is the series where all the Nintendo characters get to fight each other and uh, hit each other with things across various stages based on video games. And it is more Smash Brothers. It is the controls haven't changed. It's, it it's gotten smoother. The graphics have gotten better. This new one has everything has been all the past games uh, plus more. I mean, it expands way beyond Nintendo. It was like Sonic and Pac-Man and Final Fantasy characters in it now, which is ridiculous. It's just this massive, uh, it's a massive party of a game. And I was originally really hesitant to play it. I thought maybe I was over Smash Brothers, maybe the years of playing in dorm rooms in high school before uh, before I before I stopped playing for a little while had gotten me really off it, like I didn't need it anymore. But after playing at a friend's house, I immediately went out and bought a copy. It's... Just a really satisfying, fun multiplayer game, and if you want like video game nostalgia, like just the, the amount of music and characters and backgrounds and the amount of stuff there, like the, the tickle your memories is amazing. But also, it just is a really fun game. It's just it's really e- easy to pick up and play, and it can handle up to eight players at once. So you bring it to a party, and everybody's happy. So yeah, is if it, you're, yeah, is, it kind of, is it the kind of game where I should buy a Nintendo Switch for it? I think it adds to the argument. I mean, between Smash Brothers, Super Mario Odyssey, um, Legend of Zelda, um, Breath of the Wild, and the incredible indie library that's now available on the Switch Store, like this amount of indie games there is alone makes it worth buying. I think that um, between the, the core Nintendo games and the indie games that are like worth buying, of which there are hundreds on the Switch Store, it's also a lot of crap. So you got to sort through it makes the Switch the biggest bargain uh, in video games right now. I mean, I love my Xbox, I love my PlayStation, but my Switch is being used almost every single day right now. Yeah, because yeah, I, I love playing Smash Brothers in uh, on the Wii, and I was pretty damn good at it, and then uh, I got rid of my Wii, and I haven't played Smash Brothers in forever, so I I keep seeing videos and people talking about it, and I kind of want to play again. Yeah, I, Brad, I, I don't know what... I want to tell you, hey, yeah, go spend $300. It's worth it, but it, it is worth it. <laughs> I mean... Uh, <laughs> I, like I said, just the the sheer amount of stuff on my Switch, the sheer amount of, of games I've been wanting to play for years that were like PC only, they're now suddenly on the Switch, are and they're now portable. Uh, it's just it's kind of mind boggling. So in addition to in addition to Smash Brothers, I mean just the the Switch is just this magical little device. Yeah. Whether you're playing on your TV or you're playing in handheld. Kitra's currently addicted to the new Pokemon game. I can't like get her off that thing. She's like trying to get them all. I guess. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't picked it up yet. I have friends who are who are loving it. I haven't played Pokemon since Red and Blue in '98, so I, I, I it's not something I you know am super uh, attached to playing. But I have really fond memories of it. But we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll get around to playing it someday. Uh, but speaking of smaller games on Nintendo Switch, uh, I replayed Steam World Dig, a game I played on PlayStation Four years ago. It's a um, steampunk Western robot game where you play a robot miner digging through the earth. Um, finding like puzzles, solving um, all kinds of little puzzles, fighting enemies, and navigating. The, the whole joy of this game is navigating. You upgrade your pickaxe and your drill, and you have to like drill into the earth and find passages and create ways to get in and out and get back to town to sell the things you find and upgrade your stuff. And it's it's a very short game. If you, if you play it like start to finish, it's only a few hours long. I think I beat it in five hours um, my second playthrough. Probably get up maybe eight hours if you like really see everything, but it's super cheap now. I think I bought it on sale for five bucks, but I think it's normally ten. And it's just a really 
fun, colorful, uh, nice game to play. Never really difficult, um, but just challenging enough to, you know, get, get lets you relax. Uh, but the sequel game, there's actually SteamWorld Dig 2 out there. I have not played it yet, but it's another sequel. It's set in the same universe called SteamWorld Heist, which is once again, you play as steampunk robots, except instead of mining, you're on a spaceship uh, in this Firefly-esque galaxy, flying around, raiding other ships, getting supplies, building crews, uh, up- upgrading your crews, giving them the right guns, and stealing crap from other robots. And it is the closest I've played to a great Firefly video game. It has that same vibe, the same Western sci-fi vibe. It's just you know robots instead of people. And it is a turn-based strategy, so you're controlling your team of robots, and you equip them, you send them in, you send them in to the sh- enemy ship, you tell them where to go, you uh, tell them which items to use, you have to... Um, use the right weapons and items at the right times. It's not complex strategy. Uh, if you're looking for like a super in-depth, like deep strategy game, I mean, Civilization, Civilization Six is now available on Nintendo Switch as well. That's a, that's probably more of your speed. But this is really fun. It's, it's, it's a great game to play while you have like a show you're half watching on. Like if you're watching a Property Brothers Marathon HGTV on a Sunday morning, it's great to play SteamWorld Heist while you watch that. It's also a relatively cheap game. I think I, think I got it for 15 I'm not sure what the actual price is normally, but a SteamWorld Heist is very good. Cool, and all of those games are available on the Switch? Or no, you said... Yep. Yeah. Those, uh, Smash Brothers is a Switch exclusive. SteamWorld Dig and SteamWorld Heist are available on multiple consoles. I believe PS4, PC, Xbox. I, uh, I'm pretty sure they're available wherever you can buy a video game. Okay, that brings us to the end of today's Slash Home Daily. You can find more of all of our work on SlashFilm.com. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, or if you're looking for life advice from Chris, you can send them to Peter at SlashFilm.com. That's Peter at SlashFilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention the email on the air. And as always, please go to our iTunes page, write us a five-star review, uh, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll see you tomorrow. Hey, hey, Peter, we we can't end the show yet. J- Jacob, we've gone it, – it, it's, it's an hour and 35 minutes. It's a very long show, but you know the most important part of the show has not happened yet. <laughs> and that would be? That would be where I uh, open up the gargantuan book of insult, offense, and effrontery by Louis A. Safian, and I read some insults for all of you. Is there any holiday insults? Is, is there uh, a... <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a holiday section, but we'll save those for a little closer to the holiday. Because right now I've opened up okay. to page 257 in the do nothings section. Hey, hey, Peter, do you drink? Uh, sometimes. Well, you stand with a cocktail shaker in your hand waiting for an earthquake. Wait, I, I'm confused, Jacob. I, You're too lazy to shake the actual thing, so you uh, wait for the earthquake to do it for you. Uh, yeah, that's jokes yep. that need to be explained. Yeah. Well, Ben is suffering from overwork. Overworking is alibi for why he isn't working. <laughs> uh, oh. And HT just moved to New York City, so she's known as the NYU lady. NYU standing for New York unemployed. Ah, that doesn't make any sense because she works here. Well, Brad can fall asleep even while running for a bus. Oh, that's true, hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, let's see. I need. Uh, oh no, Chris. Chris, I haven't done you yet. Um, <laughs> yes, well, don't Chris, leave me out. 
<laughs> when he got married, he probably told his wife, a successful career woman, that marriage and a career don't mix. Since then, he's never worked. Oh, a lot of, a lot of oh. jokes about not working this week. <laughs> yeah, it's from the. From I, th- the I think he's trying section. to send us a message here. <laughs> yes, we're all lazy. <laughs> yeah, he, he cracked whip a little harder. God. <laughs> So much, so much not going up in Slashdom.com, guys. So many articles left unwritten. Well, you know we've all been on this podcast for the last two hours, so I don't. I'm not even sure if there's posts going up. Uh, I've been watching. I've been watching all kinds of things not happen on the site, Peter. Every day, all day, everybody's fault, except me. I'm the best. You are the best, Jacob. Thank you, HG. You're no longer lazy. Thanks. Is she employed now? Oh yeah, she's employed. <laughs> Magically employed. Peter, I'm firing you from your own site until you tell me I'm the best. Uh, you're the best? Around. Hooray, you, you are now the owner of SlashFilm.com again, Peter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I don't even know where to go with this. Straight out the door. Yes. <laughs> out the window. <laughs>